So let me ask you, how many of you uh, follow the Oxford English Dictionary blog? Okay, I didn't think I'd see any hands. Um, I don't either, just in case you're wondering. Uh, but, but you might every now and then come across the fact that each year they choose a word of the year. And uh, a few years back, uh, the word kind of caught my attention. The word was post-truth. And they did that because they thought this was a word that they started seeing used a lot in culture. And so they defined post-truth like this. It's relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, I, I think if you've been paying attention or you read people from the past, the year that they chose to do that was not the year in which people stopped caring about the truth. Uh, people have stopped caring about the truth for a while now. And one of the main reasons is because there is a fear that if you say that something is true, that will lead to oppression. That, that truth claims are simply power plays. They're attempts to gain power or influence over someone else. And so therefore we need to get rid of truth, we need to minimize truth. And this has been happening for a long time. For example, in the late 1980s at uh, Harvard, the institution that, uh, well, I don't know if they care about the truth, but in the 80s, a graduate student there speaking at commencement said this, they tell us it's heresies to suggest the superiority of some value. Fantasy to believe in moral argument. Slavery to submit to a judgment sounder than your own. The freedom of our day is the freedom to devote yourself to any values we please on the mere condition that we do not believe them to be true. And so what, what's that really saying? It's saying we have the kind of freedom that you can only have once you move past truth. That the moment you say there is truth, we're told you no longer have freedom. And what is Christianity? It says it's the truth, right? And so in our culture, religious truth is the enemy of freedom. And for many, Christianity is viewed as the enemy of freedom. And that's why... If you've interacted with hardcore atheists, atheist organizations, one of their favorite names they give themselves is free thinkers. Because they're not bound by the, the, the constraints of religious belief. They are free to be able to think what is what they would like and what they believe is true. And so I want us to ask this afternoon, if you are a Christian and you claim that Christianity is the truth, are you not free? Do you have to sacrifice your freedom to be a Christian? Or do you have to reject truth if you want to truly be free? And to help to answer this, I want to look at something Jesus tells us in John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to John chapter 8. In John 8, Jesus is addressing the Jews at the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's been talking about who he is, and why the Jews need to believe in him in order to know the Father and to not die in their sins. And verse 30 tells us some believe in him. So in verse 31, we find this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And here he begins to describe what true discipleship looks like. What does true discipleship look like? First, true, true disciples continue in God's word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 
which means it's at least possible to believe and not be a disciple. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, James 2 tells us that even demons believe. There's a kind of belief that isn't a disciple's belief. Maybe it's intellectual assent, it's acknowledgement this is truth, but there's not maybe a commitment to it. And that's why Jesus says, if you're truly my disciples, you abide in my word. You continue in my word. You remain in my word. And what does that mean? Well, it means studying it. It means following it. It means obeying it, seeking to know it. And this is not a condition for discipleship. Jesus doesn't say, if you abide in my word, you will become my disciple. He's saying, this is evidence you are my disciple. And since you say you've believed, well, are you going to continue? And if you don't continue, it's going to be clear you aren't really my disciple. And as you work through this passage, we won't take the time to look at all of it, but it becomes pretty clear these Jews who had believed in Jesus are not truly his disciples. Because later on, Jesus says, the devil's your father. He says, you don't believe the truth. And at the end of the chapter, they take up stones to kill him. So these are not his disciples. Even though they'd expressed some level of faith, they were not true disciples because they did not continue in Jesus's word. And I think, I think that's the primary evidence he gives, the primary distinction between those who are professors of faith and those who are true disciples of Jesus is whether or not they remain or continue in his word. But he gives another evidence, and that's found in verse 32. And I want to take a little bit of time to think about this in light of our topic. Verse 32, you and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth. True disciples know the truth. Which leads us then to have to ask, is there even such a thing as truth? Because there are many in our day who say, there's nothing that's really capital T true. There are small t truths. There's my truth. There's your truth. Certain things perhaps are true for you and not true for me. And so we all have to decide truth for ourselves. That's on a purely individual level. Some might say, well, there's at least cultural truths. That perhaps some things are true for, for us here in Southeast Michigan, in the West. Maybe that's different for those who are in Sub-Saharan Africa or in India or in Oceania. They may have different truths than us and they may conflict, but that's fine because there's not a big T truth we're talking about. We're just talking about individual separate truths for different people. And let's be clear, we're not saying people believe different things. It's obvious people believe different things. We're actually here saying it's actually true for them. There are different truths for different, different people. And why should we think about this? Well, right away, this should strike us as kind of strange because it doesn't seem to be the world we live in at all. Are there really some things that are true for me, but not true for you? Is that really true for all things? So, so if I, for example, were to climb up on top of this building and I were to say, you know what? For me, gravity is not true. It might be true for you, but for me, it's not true. Now, would you look at me and say, Ben, you know what? I respect your truth. Jump. <laughs> I hope you wouldn't say that. I hope you'd say, I, I don't care whether or not you think it's true, Ben. It's true. There's gravity. Right? And we don't say, well, you know, perhaps for, for you, the earth orbits around the sun. But for me, the sun actually orbits around the earth. You'd say, well, that might be what you think, but it's not true. 
that regardless of what you think, this is true. And additionally, that is actually a belief that we often call a self-defeating belief. How many of you ever heard that phrase before? Self-defeating beliefs, a few of you. So a self-defeating belief is this. If you say this is true, then it also makes that very same statement false. And in other words, it can't actually stand up. Because the moment you affirm it, you have to deny it. So, so this is how it works. It is true that there is no truth. Like, wait a minute. Is that statement true? Yes. Well, then it has to be false, right? Because if it's true, there is no truth, then there actually is truth. So it's a self-defeating belief. Which is why most people don't really fully embrace this. They, they may give lip service to this idea, but they, they're willing to say, well, okay, there's scientific truth out there. There, there are some things that are, are true for everyone. But really, where we start to get into issues is once we get into the realm of morality. I mean, scientific truth is one thing, but morality is something very different. That the morality, at, at best, is expressions of personal and cultural values. So if I came up to you and I said, you know, I, I think Starbucks coffee is disgusting. And you say, you know, well, that's your opinion. Is Starbucks coffee actually disgusting? And objectively, the answer is obviously yes. <laughs> but at the same time, you have to say, but really, that's just your taste. All right. I mean, that's, we're not actually saying it's disgusting for everyone. You just don't like it. Right? Is that the same thing as me saying rape is wrong? That, that really, we're not talking about something that's true. We're just saying, I find it distasteful. I don't really prefer it. I would like something else. If there is no moral truths, that's all we're saying. All we're saying is, this is my preference. This is what I would like. But I can't really tell you it's wrong. And again, as much as we, we want to say, well, morality is just relative. Everyone has to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. When we're really pressed on it, we have to eventually recognize, okay, you know, there's some things that are wrong no matter what. And that's why you have people who are very committed to the idea that, that no culture can tell another culture what to do. And they're very clear and very evident in saying every culture needs to decide what's right and wrong for itself. But this culture is demeaning to women, and so they need to stop being demeaning to women and start need to, uh, raising up women. And so what just happened? We, we said, okay, there are some universal truths. There are universal human rights, right? That's a moral judgment. And so as much as people want to say morality is all relative, when push comes to shove, they start saying there really is a difference. Because they aren't willing to say, you know what? I think it's great that you have this organization to rescue stray dogs. And really, though, in the grand scheme of things, that's no different than this organization that's designed to steal dogs and throw them in the river. Because really, who's to say who's right and who's wrong? And it says, well, I'm going to tell you, right? This is right and this is wrong. Because we know there actually is moral truth. There actually is moral objective standards. Which leads us then to the third kind of relativism. So some would say, okay, all right. 
Science, sure, scientific truths are true. Uh, historical truths are true. Uh, maybe morality. There's some moral truths out there. But we're talking about religion here. I mean, religion's a whole different category. And the moment you start saying religions are true, that's especially when we start getting into oppressive and dangerous behaviors and attitudes. And so is religious truth oppressive? Well, I think it's important to admit some religious truths are oppressive. For example, why uh, do certain people strap bombs to themselves and go to places and blow themselves up? Because they believe certain things. Why did the people who started the Crusades start the Crusades? In part because of religious beliefs that they had. But it's not just religion. Why did the Nazis do what they did? Why did the Marxists do what they did? That yes, often beliefs are oppressive, but they're not oppressive because they are beliefs. They're oppressive because of what those beliefs are. That we can't simply say religions are oppressive. We can say some religions are oppressive. Some belief systems are oppressive. But just believing something is true does not necessarily make it oppressive. And how do we know that? Because in the end, we cannot avoid believing religious truth. Think about the person that comes to you and says, all right, so you're a Christian and you think Christianity is true. And because you think Christianity is true, that leads to oppression, right? Because you also have Muslims and, and Hindus and Buddhists and atheists, and, and, and they think their beliefs are true. And so you're going to fight with each other as long as you believe those truths are, are, are true. And so stop believing those things are true. What are they asking you to do? To believe a new truth, right? They want you to believe you shouldn't believe things so much. They're wanting to essentially say, look, don't believe what you believe. Don't believe what you believe. Believe what? What I believe, right? And so they haven't avoided religious belief. They just have a different religious belief. And you ask that person, so is that an oppressive belief system that you have? No, my whole goal is not to be oppressive. Oh, okay. So believing something isn't necessarily oppressive then, right? The question is, what are you believing and what does that lead you to do? We all, we all believe things. Truth is unavoidable in every aspect of life. So there is truth. Some truths might be oppressive. We'll think more about that in a little bit. But Jesus doesn't just say there is truth. What does he actually say in verse 32? You will know the truth. Now, now there might be some people who have listened to everything I said and said, said, you know, Ben, you're right. Truth is unavoidable. The issue is we just can't ever know it. It's impossible to know whether or not something is true or not true. And again, I would say there's a problem with that. The problem is none of us actually believe that's true. Because if we left our conference today and we went out to the, the parking lot and I got in your car and started to drive away and you said, wait, wait a minute, Ben, <laughs> that's my car. And I said, well, is it really possible to know whose car this is? <laughs> right. You wouldn't say, you know what? That's pretty convincing, right? You'd say, no, no, no. I know that's my car, right? 
because the moment these things come into play, the people who in the past were like, well, who's to say whether we can know anything, all of a sudden become very clear, I know this. We all recognize we can know certain things. And again, that's another self-defeating belief. I know that we cannot know the truth. And so if you believe that, you know that you can know some truth. And you say, well, I don't even know if that statement's true. I'd say, well, I'm telling you it's false then. Because you can know the truth. And Jesus here tells us we can know the truth. And yet, what he's focusing on is a little bit different than just pure intellectual knowledge. Because how is it that we come to know the truth? It's not just through reasoning and logic. We actually come to know the truth by continuing in his word. And so here what we see is, it's not mere intellectual curiosity that will allow us to get to the truth. Instead, truth is connected to a commitment to obeying Jesus. And often that's our problem. So we've been talking about the issue of apologetics. Pastor Ken brought this up in his first session. Often the issue is not an issue of knowledge. It's not an issue of information. It's an issue of will. It's an issue of heart. We don't want to know the truth. And we certainly live in a culture in which often, rather than trying to stop and think about truth, we constantly try to distract ourselves. Because I don't have to stop and think about truth if I can just kind of scroll a little bit. If I can play another video game, or watch another movie, or watch another game, or go to some kind of show, I can be awe-mused, where I do not have to think. Because I don't really want to consider the truth. We don't want to believe the truth, and therefore we do not know it. But here Jesus says, if you do want to know it, you can. If you continue my word, you will know the truth. And what is the truth focused on here? But the truth here is not necessarily just generic truth. It's the truth he's been talking about. It's the truth about him. It's the truth about Jesus Christ. It's what he said in this chapter in which he began by saying, I am the light of the world. Or later in verse 21, 24, where he says, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Or later in verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Or at the very end of the chapter, before Abraham was, I am. That Jesus is God. That Jesus is the only way in which we can be rid of our sin. That if we keep his word, we will never see death. And so if we continue in Christ's word, we will know the truth about him and we will come to understand our own spiritual condition. Because one of the many fears that people have about truth, as I said, is that it is oppressive. And yet here, Jesus says, it's the truth that will set you free. And notice how this Jews respond in verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, a lot of people have, have looked at this and said, you know, it really seems strange to me that the Jews would say that they've never been enslaved to anyone. Because have you ever looked at the history of Judaism? 
Like they're enslaved to the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and, and then the Greeks. And where are they right now? They're enslaved to the Romans. Right? So how can they say we've never been slaves to anyone? So I don't think Jesus is here talking about physical slavery. I think the Jews recognize he's not talking about physical slavery. He's talking about spiritual slavery. Because what do they include in their answer? We're fine spiritually. We're Abraham's offspring. We're God's people. We're right with God. We don't have a problem. That they are, they are missing out on their own slavery. And notice what Jesus had just said. How will you be made free? If you continue in my word. And when he gives them his word, what do they immediately do? Reject it. You need to be made free. Well, we're not, we're not slaves. Jesus, you're wrong about us. And what are they demonstrating? We're not continuing his word. We're not abiding in his word. And therefore, we're not truly his disciples. So how is it that the truth can actually set us free? That we have to kind of answer, what is freedom? Because our culture has a particular understanding of freedom that in many ways is summed up well in a song you may know. Let it go. I'm not going to sing it. But in the song, there is this phrase. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And I think that really sums up the way we tend to think about freedom. That what is freedom in our day? That freedom means no one tells me what to do. I am free as long as I can do whatever I want to do. That I'm only free if I am free to follow my own desires. And again, that didn't start with Frozen. There's actually a, a Supreme Court case from the 80s, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. One of the cases that ended up being overturned in the Dobbs decision. It includes this statement. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. What's that saying? If we are to truly be free, no one else can tell us what our meaning, what our purpose is, who we are. That freedom means we get to decide that for ourselves. We need to be free to do whatever we want. Now, usually there's at least two limitations that people will put onto that. The first is you can do whatever you want as long as you aren't keeping someone else from doing whatever they want. And so sometimes that's put in as do whatever you want as long as you don't harm someone else. If you're not harming someone else, you can do whatever you want. And often there's kind of a, a separate one as well. You can do whatever you want as long as you don't tell someone else they can't do whatever they want. And that's tied in with our whole problem with truth, right? The moment you say, look, you can't do that, well, you can't do that, right? You can do whatever you want as long as you don't tell someone else they can't do whatever they want. Right? What should we think about that? If that's true, that means that nothing really matters. That, that if we really are free to decide for ourselves who we are, what we're going to be, what, what we want, that means there is no actual thing that we should be. 
There actually is no right and wrong. There actually is no purpose and meaning in life. If we create our own purpose and meaning, you know what that is? A made up purpose and meaning. It is like playing dollhouse. And we create a story, but it's all just pretend. That there actually is no substance to reality and no substance to life. But that's also not really where the greatest freedom is found. I think as well, one issue you have right away is if you're saying you are free to do whatever you want as long as you don't harm someone else, you realize you've now actually said there are some limits to freedom. And so you've begun to say some things are right and some things are wrong. And without actually having anything being right or wrong, how do I even know if I'm harming you? If I cut into your body, am I harming you? The answer is, well, it kind of depends on what I'm doing, right? If I'm doing open heart surgery to, to fix some kind of issue you have that others would kill you, then I'm helping you. If I'm trying to steal your kidney, I'm not, <laughs> right? And the only way you know that is in a sense is if you know it's wrong to steal a kidney and it's right to help someone live. So you can't even know whether or not something's harmful unless you have right and wrong. So that limit itself only works if we actually have other kinds of limitations. But think about it in this way. I, I have three boys. They have all been, been going through soccer in the last few years. How many of you, when you were in elementary, you, you played soccer in some kind of league? I think a lot of you did. How many of you ever watched five-year-olds play soccer? All right. So, so you, I think you know what I'm getting at. All right. So you get a bunch of five-year-olds out there. And, and if, let's say, we, we don't want to tell you what soccer is. Right? We want you to be able to decide for yourself what you believe soccer to be. Right? And so you put the five-year-olds out there. What do you get? Exactly. Right? Anarchy. Right? And it does not look pretty, right? How many of you ever watched the World Cup? A few of you. Your soccer is sometimes called the beautiful game. And why is it called that? Because at the highest levels of play, it's incredible to watch. It's amazing to, to see the skill and the artistry and the, and the, and the, the way that, that the team can move together and anticipate where they're going, all these kinds of things. How did you get to that level? And the answer is a whole lot of restrictions along the way. That no one playing in the World Cup was simply told throughout their entire career, do whatever you want. Right? Instead, what, they were, what were they told? Kick this way, run this way, act this way. There's a whole lot of discipline, a whole lot of restraint. And without that, you could not get the beauty that you see there. Or think if you're trying to learn the piano. Again, a six-year-old sits down and the teacher says, do whatever comes to you. Right? Just follow your heart. What do you get? Nothing you want to hear. <laughs> Yet, you go down to the Detroit, Detroit Symphony Orchestra. You have a world-renowned pianist playing there. And what do you get? Beauty. How did that person get there? A whole lot of discipline, a whole lot of restraint, a whole lot of not do whatever you want. 
that the idea that freedom actually comes from the absence of restraint does not make sense. The best kinds of freedom actually come within the right kind of restraints. Because those who are playing soccer at that level were taught these are the right kind of restraints. And within those restraints, you can have incredible creativity and artistry. The pianist learns the right kind of restraints, and then he can have incredible creativity and artistry. They're able to do incredible things within the right kind of restraints. That true freedom is not throwing off restraints. True freedom actually is finding the proper restraints. Because inevitably, pursuing good means curtailing freedoms in some ways. That if you want to, let's say your news reader's resolution was to, to lose weight. You know, maybe it was, you know, to lose weight because you're overweight. Maybe it was, I want to have abs by the end of 2024. Whatever it was, you're saying some health-related issue. And, and inevitably, what will that mean? Not doing certain things that maybe you did this last year. Maybe not having Twinkies at 3 a.m., right? <laughs> maybe getting up earlier to go to the gym. Right. So you're giving up sleep in order to do something else. Let's say you want to become the kind of pianist that could play at the Detroit Symphony Orchestra or violinist or whatever kind of instrument. What will that include? A whole lot of giving up other things. That if you're someone who says, I'm just going to follow my heart and do whatever I want, you'll never become a top-tier musician. Because you have to say no to some things to say yes to other things. That freedom always includes, goods always include curtailing freedoms in certain ways. And so how do we understand freedom in our life? The, the only way we as an individual can actually be free is if we under, understand what the right restraints are for us. In a sense, our freedom does not come from deciding our own existence and meaning and purpose. Our freedom actually comes from discovering our true existence, meaning, and purpose. That we can only be what we were meant to be when we understand what we were meant to be. And inevitably, there are certain things that we should not and could not do. So just think about it this way. Let's say you are a five foot five, 125 pound man. And you say, I am going to follow my heart and become an NFL offensive lineman for the Detroit Lions. <laughs> if you have a friend that tells you that, I think you wisely would say, you know what, I, I, I love you, but that's not going to happen. That's not in your nature. You could try as much as you want. You could, you could study technique. You could become the best at moving your feet in particular ways. You're never going to be an offensive lineman for the Detroit Lions. Inevitably, there are certain restrictions in place. And you can't move past those things. And we as humans have certain restrictions in place. And only once we recognize those rightly will we be able to find true freedom. And if we deny those, we actually will only find slavery. And that's what Jesus tells us in verse 35 or verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The Jew says, we're free. 
She says, no, you're not. You're a slave because you practice sin. And what is at the heart of sin from a biblical perspective? At the heart of sin is the desire to place ourselves in the place of God. To make us God rather than allow God to be God and to view him as God. That's what Adam and Eve did. We can become like God, knowing good and evil. And as long as you are deciding for yourself, this is what I will do, this is how I will live, you will be enslaved. Why? Because we will constantly be bound to our own sinful desires. Sometimes this is easy to see in in certain addictions like uh, uh, drunkenness or or, uh, drug addictions. You think, hey, I'm in control. I'm the one in charge. And yet, who's really in charge? You say you're free, but you're not really free to quit. It's not letting you quit, right? And that's true for perhaps things like pornography. That might be true for those who have constantly given in to anger, those who have constantly pursued their own selfish ends in gossip, all these kinds of ways in which we think we're in control, and yet we actually become slaves to our own desires. And as long as that's true, we also have no security. Look at verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. Because as long as you're a slave, you can be sold. There's no security. And as long as you are placing your confidence and hope in yourself and your desires and the things of this world, there is no security. If you say, I am going to live for my career then you're constantly in fear of what happens if this business fails? What happens if my coworker gets ahead of me? What happens if I don't meet this deadline? If you're living to say, my academic career is what's gonna get me there, then you're constantly in dread of what if I fail this test? What if I don't pass this class? What if I don't get into the grad school I need to get into? And it weighs you down with anxiety. If you say instead, I'm gonna live for my family, then you'll start to be controlling. You'll start to view your spouse as if your spouse could provide you everything that you need in life. You're gonna start living as if your children could give you all that you need in life. You'll be in slavery. You'll be constantly in jeopardy. Because ultimately, anything that you live for in this world can be taken away. Whether it's taken away from you in this life or whether you're taken away from it in your death. There's no security. And so what's the answer to our problem of slavery to sin? The answer is the Son has to set us free. Because the Son remains forever. And therefore, He has the authority to set us free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is a reminder, we can do nothing to free ourselves. Jesus is talking to very religious people. And there is no ritual, there is no action, there's nothing that you can do, there's no amount of good that you can do to free yourself from the slavery of sin. You must have Jesus do it for you. And if Jesus does free you from sin, but then you are truly free. Because you're free from the guilt and penalty of sin.
You're increasingly freed from the power of sin in your life, and one day you will be freed from the very presence of sin. So if you're someone here today, and you've been nervous about Christianity because you think Christianity in some way is going to stifle who you are, realize who you are right now is a slave to your own sin. And the only way for you not to be stifled is to have Jesus to free you. Perhaps you're someone here who has said, I believe in Jesus, and yet you don't continue in his word. You're not really concerned with what he has to say. And realize you've never been truly set free from your sin. And call out to Jesus today to make you a true disciple. But I hope that most of you are true disciples. To you, I would say, don't believe what our culture says about truth. Don't believe the lie that truth does not matter. Realize that in your battle with lingering sin, there is hope for victory. That you can be set free from sin through Jesus Christ. So therefore, remain in his word and rejoice that true disciples of Jesus Christ are truly free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though we were slaves to our sin, that you sent your son that we might be made free through him. That even though we were enemies, Christ died for us. So it help us to long for the freedom that only you can provide. Help us hold fast to, your, to the truth that you have revealed to us through your word. And help us to proclaim this message of freedom to those in our world who are still slaves to sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.